I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Fernanda Tomaselli. Fernanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, you're an environmental uh, communicator, right? Yes. So I did uh, my bachelor in environmental communications many years ago, like I think maybe 15, 20 years ago, and my PhD somewhat related to communications as well. So yeah, definitely. I think it's the field that applies to my degree to some extent. Yeah. And what does that involve? So um, it's it's sort of the social sciences of um, the environment. So it's actually pretty hard to find a degree in environmental communication. So not many universities offer it. So I am from Ecuador and um, 20 years ago when I was in university, I was very lucky that the School of Environment where I studied, uh, they offered, you know, biology, ecology, biotechnology, but they also offered environmental communication. So it's usually more focused on the social sciences and it's about how we can be more effective communicators when we talk about issues related to the environment, conservation. Uh, so uh, we studied uh, quite a bit in the School of Communication as well. So as to be, you know, better communicators uh, in the written language, but also we learned, uh, you know, how to do videos, how to edit them. So how to be more effective in communicating issues, any issue related to the environment. That's really uh, progressive and ahead of its time. Uh Many schools are only just starting to recognize the importance of effective science communication. Absolutely. Yeah. So this was uh, about 20 years ago, but it's, my God, like when I studied environmental communication in my university, I think there were two of us, oh. which is crazy. <laughs> and we were, I think, the third ones being graduated from this uh, discipline. So, yeah. So it was, I feel so lucky that I was able to take this because my passion was really in the environment, but in the communication as well. Um, yeah, but there's, um, I think there's now more, definitely more interest in this type of, you know, students wanting to study something like this. But yeah, definitely, I feel so lucky that 20 years ago, I was able to study this in university. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, do you have any higher degrees? Uh, yes. So I did my bachelor's um, in Ecuador, in Universidad San Francisco de Quito, in environmental communications. Then I worked for a bit in Ecuador. Um, and then I started working for the forest sector. And I was really interested in, I don't know if I would say forestry, but I was interested in forest management. But again, the social side. So how to work with communities that are already managing or conserving their forests. So I was interested in the social aspect of uh, forests. So there was an amazing program here at UBC in the Faculty of Forestry called Forest and Society. So I was very attracted to that program and I came to do my master's degree in, in the Faculty of Forestry. And I did that for about two years. So I was able to do my research in West Africa in issues related to community forestry and how communities there are uh, trying to manage their forest sustainably. 
while also using those forests and, you know, benefiting in many ways. Um, yeah, and then I finished my master's degree here and I stayed for my PhD, which sort of took me back again to the topic of communication. So I focus. I focus on ecological economics and how to communicate concepts related to ecological economics um yeah to the public so i sort of changed topics and came back to my to my origin uh interest original interest in communications that's excellent (laughs) you've really um planted yourself firmly in those two different fields um and again at the right moment because science communication is being recognized as being so vitally important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel very lucky to have been, you know, explored those, uh, yeah, in, in those degrees. Absolutely. Why did you get started with, with, um, science communication? What drew you to that BA program? Right. So, um, as I mentioned, like I, I was born and I was raised in Ecuador. So most of my life I have lived in Ecuador and Ecuador is one of the most biodiverse uh, countries on the planet like it's a uh, very small so it's about uh, uh, for latin american standards it's small <laughs> and for canadian standards it's tiny so it's about one fourth the size of bc but it's a tremendously biodiverse country like some people have argued that it's maybe the most biodiverse country on the planet if you take into account the unit of area that it's so small so um just to give you one example I don't know. In Ecuador, we have about 1,600 uh, different species of birds. In Canada, I believe that's about, I'm sorry, in all of North America, I think it's about 800 or 900 different species of birds. So just in this tiny country, you find more species of amphibians, birds, uh, uh, vertebrates, vascular plants than in most of North America. So I was very interested in the, in environmental issues early on, uh, but also very concerned because we in Ecuador, we face uh, nature faces lots of pressures like there's uh, the rate of deforestation is very high and we face lots of different environmental issues. So I was I wanted to, you know, to work on solutions to those issues, but I always wanted the perspective of the social sciences more than the natural sciences. So that's why I didn't go into biology, for example, and I wanted uh, to generate awareness about the importance of nature and, you know, sus- uh, sustainably using resources. Um, so that's what motivated me to merge the two and study environment and communication. Yeah. Yeah, you're uh, famously um, bio- biologically diverse. Um, I mean, your Darwin finches inspired yes. the whole theory of evolution. <laughs> Absolutely. And we have the Galapagos <laughs> Islands that are very famous for their, you know, diversity and endemism. Like Ecuador is a extremely unique place and I felt so blessed and lucky to be born there so that's why I also felt like that responsibility is like okay we should definitely take better care of this amazing nature that we have it's unique Um, I remember when I was in uh, university like doing my bachelor's degree we used to learn about this amazing diversity in the canopy of the trees and there are so many species that we have not even discovered yet so we have species that are likely going extinct Mm -hmm. without us even knowing they ever existed so it's for me, it's like, oh my God, it's crazy. No, we, sh- we should do more to to conserve these species and the ecosystems. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying to think that something could, could go extinct before we even identify it. Absolutely. We're losing what we don't even recognize. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Most of biodiv- the biodiversity on the planet is still unknown and unclassified by science, which mm-hmm. is crazy. <laughs> 
Now, that's how you got to where you're at today. Uh, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so I am a lecturer in the Faculty of Forestry. So my m- main job, I would say, is teaching. So the like the last time I did research was during my PhD. Now it's it's mostly about teaching a first and second year courses. And also we are just starting a new field course in Ecuador. That's for third and fourth year students. So actually like in... A week, almost a week, I'm leaving to Ecuador with another professor and 20 UBC students. Yeah, so it's a course focused on uh, conservation and forest management. Yeah, so that's the latest, you know, that I'm I'm working on. Yeah. Wonderful. One of your students is one of our interns and uh, she raved about your class and said that I should interview you. Oh, that that's great. Yeah. And, and your um, intern... Um, she is part of uh, the Land One program. So I teach and coordinate uh, UBC's Land One program. So that program is a shared program between the faculties of land and food systems and forestry. And it's uh, only for first year students. And the idea of the Land One program is to support the students in their transition from high school to university so that they have a better first year university at UBC. Also, um, we offer them small smaller classes. So they are in groups of 50, 60 students maximum, mm. instead of being in, you know, the larger 200, 300, 400 student classes. And also we offer a more integrated education and more experiential education. So what we do in the Land One program is that we integrate different classes that the students are taking uh, with a perspective on global sustainability issues. So, for example, they are taking economics and we try to apply that to climate change. So how, you know, economics relates to climate change or uh, how math um, and even biology, for example, relate to the topic of exponential growth. So, yeah, so we try to um, integrate and make those topics more real for students so that they can actually see, you know, how these uh, different subjects may be useful to them and how they can apply them in the future. And we also offer more experiential learning. So one of the things we do in Lang One is that we take a number of field trips. Actually, we do like a two-day field trip to Malcolm Nab Research Forest. Uh, so students love that because they usually don't get that opportunity in first year, right? So they love that aspect of, you know, being able to connect with other students, connect with the professors, integrate the learning, but also being able to be outside and experiencing more um, the field aspect of land and food systems and forestry. Again, you're at the cutting edge of education with interdisciplinarianism and um, experiential learning. I always trip over that word. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned these field trips. Um, This is one of my favorite parts of this interview series, has been hearing about field work. Apparently, going out into the field, either for a field trip or to do field work, um, is full of unexpected surprises. Things go wrong. Um, It's terribly frustrating for you and terribly entertaining for me. Uh, Do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? So I don't... Well... I am just now going to do the Ecuador Field School. So if you interview me in like two months, (laughs) I will probably have a number of of stories. Like usually with the Lang One program, we do um, overnight field trip just here, like Malcolm Knapp, a research forest. So that's about two hours away from here. And... Like, I don't know if I have fun stories, like only the only one that is usually the tricky one is like the weather. Like students usually look forward to these field trips so much and it's in October. So we have (laughs) had experiences where it's like pouring rain, 
you know, like windy. But what I find amazing is that most students do the best, you know, they make the best out of it. So mm -hmm. they still want to go out, they get soaking wet and they still have those amazing experiences. So, yeah. Um, but I think that's maybe the most challenging that I face in a field course or a field trip. Yeah, and in two months, I will be able to tell more about, you know, Ecuador and whatever happens there because it's the first time we're running it in Ecuador. So <laughs> we'll see how, how it goes. That's exciting. Yeah. You did field work in Ecuador, right? So I did, well, I wouldn't say, like you mean for research? Uh, either for research or when you worked in industry? Well, I lived in Galapagos for like six months oh, wow. but because I'm not like a biologist uh, I it was again like social sciences so it was working with people so I was not working with you know the marine iguanas or the sharks it was working with people in the Galapagos Islands to um, encourage them to recycle the waste mm. so in Galapagos um The population is not that big, but it, it's still significant. It's I think at this point is like maybe 20,000 people, something like that. Oh, that so it's not small. And everything that comes, you know, most of the food in Galapagos comes from the continent. And the waste, like there's lots of waste. So when I worked in Galapagos, um, I worked, this was a project with, I think it was the Galapagos National Park and the local municipality. And it was a pilot project on recycling. So it was about collecting the waste from, it was like a pilot project on um, a few neighborhoods to encourage people to sort their waste and then, you know, um, to recycle it. The municipality recycled it. So my... Yeah, my work was in communications again, <laughs> and it was about influencing people and making advertisements and things like that so that they would be more willing uh, and more informed on how to sort this waste. Yeah, so I, I worked in Galapagos and then as part of my studies and a little bit of as part of my work, I also, you know, traveled quite a bit around the country. So I was able to go to the Amazon a number of times. I used to go to the coast, to the highlands. Ecuador is small, as I mentioned. Uh, so that's great because you can get to a completely different ecosystem in like two hours. Then mm -hmm. to the next completely different ecosystem in like two hours more. So you can travel from zero meters above sea level to like 6,000 meters where you have glaciers in maybe four hours or five hours. So, you know, so it's a small country that condenses a lot. So I was very lucky to be able to travel around and visit communities. When I work for a forest-based NGO, again, I was able to travel around different places. So yeah, so I was very lucky <laughs> to be able to see quite a bit, not everything of my country, but quite a bit of my country. Conversely, I'm from Winnipeg and oh. <laughs> depending on the direction, you can drive for days and oh not God. really see a difference, <laughs> depending on the direction. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've never been in Winnipeg, but I would love to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not many trees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're clearly very passionate about your work. Um, What would you say is the best part of your work? Oh, I really love, really love interacting with the students. Oh, I was like on leave for one year and I thought like, oh my God, when I come back, I, I'm not sure how it's going to be. 
I think the day one that I was back and I met so many students that I haven't seen in the whole year that I was on leave. Oh, it's like so energizing. So for me, like working with the students and being able to encourage them, you know, to do better or to improve in their assignments. And also, like I'm very passionate about the topics that I teach. So I teach topics related to sustainability, conservation. Um, so it's, it's like a dream, right? Like being able to share this knowledge uh, on many students that are interested in learning uh, the best. So for sure, I think the relationship with the students and in programs like Lang One, I have them for one full year. So with many students, you are able to uh, develop like a very a deeper connection. Um, it, it's wonderful. And I can see these students like because they're now in first year, but I can see them in second, third, fourth year. Like now that I'm going to Ecuador, I'm bringing, I think it's about three Lang One students from like three years ago. And it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, so definitely I'm a social person. So definitely the connection with the students is, I think, the best in addition to the topics that I teach, which I love. So yeah, <laughs> all of that combination like makes me really like my job. I, I somehow figured that would be your answer. And as someone who teaches in a museum, I, I completely empathize. <laughs> yes, yes. I think we are very lucky to be able to share knowledge on something that we love about. Yeah, it's the best job. Now, I'm going to ask the inverse question. What's the worst part of your work? Or the most challenging? Oh my God. Um, I don't know if the worst, but like now I'm grading a lot. Uh, I wouldn't say the worst because I do and I definitely enjoy it, but it is very time consuming. And some of my classes are like medium slash large size, like 160, 180 students. My TAs, bless my TAs, they do most of the grading, but still, for example, exams, I am the one grading exams. Um, so now I have to go back to my office and grade, you know, 400 questions, open-ended questions, oh. which it's fine. Like, I like it. Actually, like, it's not like I hate it. I like it. But it's so, so time-consuming. So I think grading is probably the least favorite part of my work. 400 of anything would kind of turn you off after a while. I know, I 400 know. puppies. You know, I know. Could turn I you know. off puppies. Absolutely. And it, it's crazy. Like, it's not that bad. You know, it sounds terrible. It's not that bad, but it, it is a lot. At some point, you're like, oh my God, like I just want it to be done, mm -hmm. all the grading, because it's a lot of grading. Yes. <laughs> now, I'm curious uh, do you identify as belong to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your work in any way? Uh, like, I definitely identify as Latin American. Like, I, I am Latin American. My main language is Spanish. But I don't know if I would say, um, I definitely, I don't think I'm part of a visible, visible minority. So maybe that makes a difference. And something that I have faced, and this is just my personal experience, since I arrived to Canada has been nothing more than a welcoming environment. Like, uh, since I arrived here. I have been so amazed by how welcoming people are. Um, so many people are interested in like, oh my God, you speak Spanish. Oh, where are you from? Oh, can you know, you tell me more about your country or your culture. So actually I have seen so many people very open to learning, you know, about different things and uh, many people interested, you know, speaking in Spanish and things like that. So yeah, so I think... Uh, 
actually a very, very welcoming environment. I, I, ha- I don't think that I have faced like discrimination or anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. Having said that, can- Canadian culture, whatever you can call it, which is like, is <laughs> <laughs> different, right? Like Latin Americans, mm-hmm. we tend to be not everyone, but a lot of us, we tend to be loud. We speak very fast. So I think sometimes I can feel out of place a little bit because I'm, you know, like can maybe your average Canadian or maybe the environment at UBC is not so much like that. Most people are more quiet, more reserved. So for me, that has been a little bit challenging because I am not reserved. <laughs> um, so navigating that culture, especially I guess at UBC, has been a tiny bit challenge. It's just, you know, adapting to a different culture. Yeah. So every time I see a Latin American, I'm like, oh my God, here you are. It's so great <laughs> to be able, you know, to, I don't know, speak the same language and also in in the same way. Like, but I, as I said, like not all Latin Americans are so outspoken and loud. And so many Canadians and people at UBC are also, you know, not everyone is reserved. So yeah, so that has been maybe a little bit strange uh, adapting to that culture. Uh, but yeah, like as I said, I felt so welcomed and there have been so many opportunities since I arrived here as a student that I would have never even dreamed of having in Ecuador. So I feel very uh, thankful, actually, to Canada and to the people here. Canada does have a reputation for being a bit chillier <laughs> in the, the um, cultural sense. Right. <laughs> and even Vancouver um, tends to have a reputation within Canada for being a little frostier. Right, yeah. Uh, socially. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, um, did COVID impact your studies or your work in any way? So um, it did, but I would have said it was not that bad. And actually, it was maybe positive. So <laughs> my work, I teach, that's what I do most, you know, 99% of the time. So COVID definitely influenced how we teach, right? And suddenly we had to go from face-to-face and I do really well face-to-face. Like I love being with the students. I really like the interaction. So I think that was like very challenging. Like, oh my God, how are we going to move from face-to-face that I enjoy so much to like online? I've never talked online before. I had no idea how it worked. So that was like scary, I would say, to say the least. Um, And the first transition had to be very quickly, like in one weekend, we just had to transition. So that was a little bit strange, but luckily it was the end of the term. So we didn't have that many classes online that this was like end of March of 2020. So then I remember that they told us, oh my God, like in September, you are teaching online. And I was like, oh no, like, oh no. But then I felt like at UBC, I felt that they provided us lots of support, like in Mm -hmm. the Faculty of Forestry, a lot. And CTLT, for example, they did so many workshops helping us to transition our classes online. And I, it was, it was an amazing learning experience because I've never talked online before. So for me, like I prefer face-to-face teaching than online, but I really appreciate um, being able to have learned. Like now, if I have to do an online course, I know how to do it. And pretty good. Like I think that my classes work out really well, given that it was online. So I think if anything, it was challenging, but I feel grateful now to have learned how to do it. Um, And I'm also grateful to be back face to face, (laughs) you know, but I'm, yeah, but I'm also, it was like, you know, a one year intensive on 
online classes on how to make them engaging, how to make them relevant for students, uh, how to make Zoom work. Although so many of us were, you know, already burned out by Zoom at the end of the year. Um, yeah, but I think if anything, it really helped me also to rethink my classes and, and to change them. Like after COVID, I also changed some aspects of how I teach. So if anything, I think that it, it helped me. Which is strange. <laughs> yeah, given that it was such a hard time for so many people. No, I think um, we had the exact same experience here at the museum. Um, teaching online was something we'd been aiming to do for years and years, but there were always other priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when that was all we had, <laughs> uh, we got really good at it, or at least I hope we got good at it. Absolutely. And um, I imagine for you, like the museum is like so experiential, like mm-hmm. moving that online. Wow. One of our, another intern was telling the story of how she was actually hired to help teach uh, faculty how to teach online. And then um, she was in one of her undergrad classes and uh, that same prof, who was one of her students, uh, was messaging her privately during the lecture to say, how do I do this on Zoom and how do I do that? (laughs) Because she'd forgotten... um, my, my intern was chuckling all the way through her absolutely, class. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I think for so many professors, it was like, okay, we have to do it. We have to learn. It will be like a very steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. Lots of work because like creating, you know, the online videos, asynchronous material, so much work. But I think it was worth it. Like mm-hmm. a, it was a, a good experience at the end. Like we all had to be more creative. <laughs> <laughs> you make... Um, Science communication sound really fun um, and environmental communication sound really fun. If anyone's listening right now and would like to follow in your footsteps, what courses or experience would you recommend they pursue to become the next Fernanda? Oh, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> take your courses. <laughs> if you are an undergrad, you can take my courses. So um, I teach first and second year courses and that, this Ecuador field course, third and fourth year course. So if you are an undergrad and you are interested in environmental issues, um, definitely, like I would suggest, I teach a course, two courses in the Faculty of Forestry uh, that are open to all UBC students. So one is called Foundations of Conservation. And the other one is called Visualizing Climate Change. The Visualizing Climate Change class is actually focused on communication. So if you are interested uh, uh, in learning about the basics of climate science, but also a little bit of the policy and basic information, but then the assignments, all of the assignments are about how you can become a better communicator. So we have um, the first assignment is a blog post on like psychological barriers to climate action. The second one is an infographic on uh, climate impact. And the third one is a podcast on any climate uh, topic that students want to explore. So that class... Most students really like it because it's it's a fun, it's applied. Um, we have like a few quizzes, but there's no final exam because we have such a big big project, the podcast, and it's open to all UBC students. So many students really love visualizing climate change. Um, it's a very practical class, uh, and the other class, Foundations of Conservation, is more. It's practical, but it's more theory as well. So it's a bit more intense, I would say, than uh, visualizing climate change. But it's the basics of uh, environmental thinking and conservation, like how we do conservation. So we touch on uh, protected areas, the good and the bad 
aspects of protected areas. We talk about ecological economics. So, you know, what are the issues maybe with the economic system that influence how we do conservation and sustainability. Um, we talk about endangered species. So it's, it's uh, again, like a second year class open to all UBC students. So there are no prerequisites. So, and many students really like that class, but that class is focused on writing. <laughs> so the main assignments are essays. So you, I think, and I hope you do become a better writer at the end, but it's academic writing. So not all the students love that, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. And then again, open to all UBC. We have the Ecuador field course. So we are running it for the first time now, uh, but we will uh, run it, you know, in future years. And that one is open. It's a science-based course. So it's mostly open to students on the sciences, but, you know, students on the arts can definitely apply. We have this, this year, we're taking a number of geography students, for example. Mm. Yeah, open to UBC. And just so that you know, we have funding this year and next year for Canadian students. So actually, some students are fully funded. Um, all Canadian students are funded. So some groups, and these are low-income, disabled students and indigenous students get full funding, 100%. And then all Canadians that do not belong to any of those groups get 50% funding. So we have funding for next year. So if you are interested, apply to the Ecuador field course. Um, yeah, so those are, you know, the courses open to UBC. And then, of course, Land One program, that's first year, uh, but that's restricted to forestry and land and food system students. So if you are an incoming student in the Faculty of Forestry or Land and Food System, definitely check uh, the Land One program. Uh, what was the most important course for you when you were studying? I think back when I was back in Ecuador, I guess the one that did the most impact was focused on conservation in Ecuador. So different ecosystems and different strategies that we take to protect ecosystems back in Ecuador. I think here at UBC, I took one class on philosophies of science Ooh. and that was really amazing. Like they made us question things that you don't necessarily question too often. Um, so it was very eye-opening. And then I forgot, I do have my favorite course of all ever times. I do. So here at UBC, when I was uh, starting my PhD, I took, um, it, wa it was called a seminar on ecological and economic systems by Professor William Rees. So Professor Rees, he created the ecological footprint methodology with one of his PhD students. So he's world famous. I studied the ecological footprint back in Ecuador because I measured the ecological footprint of my university in Ecuador. So when I was back in Ecuador, I used to read the books of Professor William Rees. So when I came here to UBC, I didn't know he was here. Until one day I checked something. I was like, oh my God, he teaches here. Wow, I must take this class. So I took his class and it changed my life. Like it changed the topic of my PhD. Uh, so prof the class of Professor Rees was focused on ecological economics. And it was a lot about what's wrong with our economic system. And uh, more importantly, how the goal of indefinite economic growth mm -hmm. clashes with potential, you know, with living in a finite planet. So the the class for me was uh, extremely eye opening, very concerning because I was like, oh my god, we must do something. <laughs> we should definitely look for different models of progress, and it changed my life because after that class, I pursued a different topic for my PhD, 
I focus actually my PhD on ecological economics and communications and post-growth economics. And quite a bit of what I teach in my classes now is related to ecological economics and post-growth. Uh, a little bit of post-growth economics as well. So definitely life-changing. Uh, yes, <laughs> that was it. Very significant. It's amazing how uh, to solve the problems of tomorrow, we're going to have to create a world that's very different um, and interact with it in a very different way than how we do it today. Yep. And it seems scary. But when we look back a decade or two or more, um, we've done this change many times before. Mm -hmm. um, when I think about the world as it was when I was a kid, uh, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. And many of the things that were perfectly acceptable back then um, are utterly unacceptable uh, now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I sometimes think that this ecological crisis that we face and social crisis may help, hopefully, <laughs> humans to awaken. And like we will, we must evolve into, you know, being better people, being satisfied with, you know, not consuming all the time and having even models of progress that are suitable for a finite planet. Mm -hmm. So I, my hope is that, that this crisis uh, pushes us to rethink our values, our worldviews, and actually evolve to become better, better people <laughs> overall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of looking to the future and uh, becoming better people, um, what would you like to have as your personal professional legacy when you retire? Oh, so this is really relates to my passion. So I'm very, as I mentioned, so passionate about ecological economics. Like that's my passion. Um, I think like I would love to make an influence in how we first teach economics. Um, like I'm not an economist, uh, but I think we can sometimes see how the way that it's talked is not conducive to sustainability. Like many students still not learn about the environment in their first year economics courses. Uh, if you want to take a class on ecological economics at UBC, it just doesn't exist. You cannot take it because it's not offered. Um, so I, I think that if I would have any legacy, it would be an influence on that. Um, like how students are learning about ecology and the environment, not in main, maybe disciplines like forestry or land and food systems, but more like business and, you know, economics and how the education in those so important disciplines get transformed so that we cannot understand the economy as separate from the environment. If anyone learns about the economy, we must learn from a paradigm, I believe, that is embedded within the ecosphere. And, you know, any economics students should, I think, actually learn that the economy is dependent on the ecosphere, not the other way around. And if we ever want to be sustainable, we must change the paradigm that we used to teach, you know, economics. Uh, so I think that for me, that's like really um, my passion. And I think in terms of legacy, that this is, you know, hard. <laughs> but changing the economic, the indicators of progress. So GDP growth is the goal for most economies across the planet. And maybe some countries need growth, but maybe other countries don't need that much growth. So changing those indicators to use maybe more comprehensive indicators of progress that actually do not clash with living in a finite planet. So finding indicators that, you know, help us to be happy while we protect the planet at the same time. I think that's the challenge for humankind. And for me, it would be amazing like to not discover those indicators because those indicators have been studied for a long time, but actually influence policy to use 
those indicators so as to replace GDP as our, you know, key goal and indicator of progress. After the 2008 financial meltdown, apparently uh, the Harvard Business School created a business ethics course uh, in response. And then all the other business schools around the world followed suit. Mm -hmm. So as this climate crisis rolls on, um, hopefully they will uh, follow your lead and um, create environmental uh, business. And uh, Absolutely. Like, can you imagine the world could be different mm -hmm. in like one generation? Like if we actually change how, you know, business is talked and how I, I was interviewed for a podcast like I think a month ago or two months ago it was business students mm -hmm. and they asked me about uh, how I, I think the question was framed around how the environment should be one sector of business and I was like it, it shouldn't it should be embedded mm -hmm. in what you know, all business do what should be sure you make a profit, but you improve the environment and you improve society. Like it should not be at the expense of the environment and society. So I think also changing the paradigms about around business and again economics, it, the world would change very quickly <laughs> if we actually do that. And as you said, some countries don't need that much growth. Canada is a wealthy nation. We shouldn't have poverty here, but we do because of how evenly that growth is or unevenly yep. it's distributed. Absolutely. And like ecological economics, it's not, or, you know, the father of ecological economics, that's Herman Daly. He's not saying, oh, you grow, you don't. Mm -hmm. But it's more like, can we question it? And he sees growth not as the end, but as a means to something. And he says, you know, if we see it as a means to, I don't know, better quality of life, then it is temporary. So some economies may need growth, other economies may not need growth. But it's just a little bit of, you know, questioning that eternal goal of GDP growth that really goes unquestioned in so many of our classes here at UBC and in the narratives of society in general. Like we always assume growth is good and it's like, well, not so much. And it has costs as well. And the costs now are very significant. So it's just, you know, questioning it just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. For my final question, where do you see environmental uh, communication going in the future um, as a field. Most fields are changing at lightning speed and the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be unrecognizable by the time that they by the time that they retire. Um, so what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these coming changes? Ooh, and if you imagine communication, <laughs> right? Like what you learn probably in year one is like maybe you maybe obsolete by year four. Mm -hmm. So I think that universities and especially on a field like environmental communication, like any university offering degrees like that must change at the speed of light and must be adapting and innovating all the time. So I think like my advice, especially for people that are more innovators that like change is, uh, yeah, like basically go with the times and especially in communications like social media and they really have changed so much of how the world runs, how the world communicates. So yeah, so I think it's just like being up with those changes and being like, sometimes I'm not okay with changes. <laughs> I sometimes <laughs> like how things were, which mm -hmm. is a challenge. But I guess if you study environmental communication, you must be willing to be open to new things and to explore new things and to test things. And social media has created many problems, but it could also help. And it, it is also helping in some way to you know, raising awareness about environmental issues, communicating faster. Yeah. So I, I don't know, just being open <laughs> to all of those changes. 
don't fight it. <laughs> and they, you know, it's like, ah, can you fight it? It's like, oh, probably not. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going to lose anyway. <laughs> I write. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, Fernanda, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything you want to add before I let you go or anything I missed? No, I think thank you so much for the opportunity to, you know, speak with you. It has been very interesting. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, best of luck uh, during your new uh, field trip. Um, that sounds really exciting. Thank I have you. to admit, um, I'm a little tempted to sign up for your courses. You can. <laughs> we are running it next year as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. And, and maybe I will talk to you in a couple of months to let you know how it all went. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beattie designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.